This is Dr. Todd May for the podcast series, Living Philosophy, brought to you by philosophytoyou.com. Living Philosophy explores the way people have brought philosophy to life through significant experiences, changes, practices, and life-affirming realizations. My guest for this episode is Kenji Harotunyan, who has been a major figure within the North American outdoor sports and adventure scene as both an athlete and a business professional for the last 33 years. An accomplished rock climber and outrigger canoeer, Kenji has brought his passion for outdoor sports, his appreciation of nature, and his unique experiences of growing up in California as a Japanese-Armenian-American to the outdoor industry. From working the floor of the former outdoor retailer Adventure 16 to being vice president for Nielsen Expo, Kenji brings a wealth of wisdom and practice to his recently formed consultation firm, Kenji Consults where he helps nonprofit and for-profit organizations and businesses meet the ever-increasing and changing challenges in the outdoor industry. Welcome to Living Philosophy, Kenji. It is a pleasure to have you on our podcast. So great, Todd, to talk with you, and thanks for having me. The outdoors and adventure sports, it's an exhilarating aspect of human life and must be an exciting career since you're not only dealing with basic things that matter to us like mental and physical well-being, and feeling alive by being out in nature, but also things that challenge our way of life like climate change, access to nature, conservation and innovation when it comes to caring for the environment. How did you become involved in the outdoor industry? And do you think if your younger self could get a glimpse of where you are now, that he'd be happy? <laughs> Great question. Uh, well, I got started in the industry in a, uh, I think in a usual way, but my background uh, being a, a kid from the inner city in Los Angeles um, and a family coming from a family that's not really outdoorsy is a little different. Most of the people that work in the industry have a family history of, uh, of engagement in quote unquote, the great outdoors and whether that's hiking or hunting or climbing or skiing or whatever it is, that's the usual path. Um, so my path uh, started as a kid, um, but as a Boy Scout, so I joined the Scouts and that's how I discovered that the LA area actually has a ton of wild places nearby that are mountainous or deserts or even shoreline um, that offered this experience of nature, immersion in nature that uh, was an amazing revelation to me as a kid. Uh, maybe I was 11, I think when I first joined. That led me into uh, just uh, being excited about being outdoors. And I started backpacking because I learned how to backpack in the scouts. And, and I was only in scouts for a couple of years. And then I discovered, you know, music and, and girls and other things that were uh, more interesting. But I always kept my uh, uh, interests in, in getting outdoors alive and kind of led my friends around. We developed this uh, group called the Fellowship of the Bong. And <laughs> that was a little later, actually. But um, so that, that got me into these wild places like the San Bernardino Mountains and the San Gabriels. I was working uh, in now out of high school and into college. Uh, I was working in the grocery business, which I have some family background in that. And I got a job in there and, you know, it was a union gig. It was part time. Uh, so I could go to school, pay my tuition, pay my rent and still have a little bit left over to eat and do what I needed to do. Uh, then I got laid off in the grocery business. Uh, even I was there for seven years, but I was the low person on the totem pole. 
with regards to uh, you know seniority. And so they were doing some whatever they were doing. And um, so I had some time and I went into the backpacking shop called Adventure 16 to supply up for a trip since I had a little extra time. And they were hiring and one thing led to another and I said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll get hired here. So, and it was 70% lower than I was making in the grocery business with no union benefits at all. And then of course, the couple, a month or two went by and then I got my job back uh, in the grocery business. But in that meantime, I had really fallen in love with working in the shop. And I was meeting people every day who were going off to Africa or they were going to uh, hike or fish or climb some cool thing. And, and that was such a different experience than working in, the, in, a, in a grocery store that I, I, I made the decision relatively quickly, like, uh, you know what, I, I, I don't like this market business. I really love this outdoor shop and I'm gonna just go all in there. And I took a 70% pay cut. I lost my union benefits. This is while I was in college um, at, at UCLA where you, know, where I, you and I have some common friends there uh, who are lifelong friends and, and uh, pals now, but I, I made that decision and it, it go, look in retrospect, it was the most important decision I made um, because I, I chose this direction at, at, with some risk, you know, that I wasn't going to graduate college, that I was going to live in a hand to mouth way or, you know, go back and live with my parents or whatever I would have to do. But it was, it was just my gut that said, you know what, this, I just love showing up at this place and people, whether they're working there or customers, they're all interesting and exciting to talk to. And that decision in retrospect was, was huge for me. And did you consult with anyone on that or was it something you just thought to yourself um, or did you talk to any outdoor friends or friends that were involved in the outdoors or was it just something you knew in your heart you had to do? Yeah, I didn't have any friends that worked in the outdoor industry, you know, uh, so I didn't have anyone to talk to. So I was just sort of a feeling that I had and, and, um, I tapped into that, you know, and I think that's it. And, and, and of course, since then I've made, you know, hundreds of friends in, in the industry through that decision, but going into it, no, I, you know, I didn't have anyone to talk to. There was a guy, I want to just talk briefly about like inspiring people. And when I was a scout, there was a, there was a guy that worked at the shop and he was a senior level, like explorer level scout or something in the leadership of the organization of Boy Scouts. And his name was John Moignet and somebody that I looked up to because I knew he was in the scouting world. And I, in fact, I think I bought my first pair of hiking boots from him. So he was sort of this icon in my, in my life. And interestingly, like he and I, we know each other pretty well now. And, but I've in a way followed his path a little bit. I, and sometimes you don't know you're doing that until you look back and then you're like, oh, ha, huh, how funny. You know, we both went to UCLA, we both worked at A16, we both pursued this, this adventure or career of, in the adventure sports industry, I guess you'd say. So that was an, an important thing that even though I didn't have people I knew, I did have people that I looked up to and that I saw as um, role models in a way. And what was it like growing up in the city there? Was it, um, were there the scouts an opportunity to get away from trouble, um, from mischief that was going on around you, or was there a much more uh, a amicable relationship with the scouts and, and the kinds of opportunities it presented? That's a great question, Todd. 
you know, I, so I was in two different scouting groups, troops. Um, the first one I actually was bullied and it was a, it was a weird experience. It was a very big troop. And I kind of had had a sour experience of that and didn't like it very much. And then, but another troop started up locally or more locally, which was, this was already pretty close to my home, but this other one was like literally two or three blocks and it was much smaller. And these, some of my friends were already in it from school. So then I joined that troop and I had a much better experience of my neighborhood, uh, smaller troop. I did make a change there that, that helped. I don't, I don't think I would have thrived in the other setting um, as much. And so I learned a little bit about leadership. I went to leadership camp um, up at a place called Camp Witsit in the Southern Sierra through that experience. So that was helpful to me. And even as in elementary school, I had found myself in leadership roles with like, you know, uh, officership in the school, uh, whatever they call it, you know, when you're the secretary and the president of the, of the elementary school, the student body elections and stuff. So I had some experience there. And then, and then the scout thing was because the next level of that. And uh, the neighborhood is, this is a very pretty rough neighborhood. Even I'm, I'm in the neighborhood that I grew up in talking to you now. And it, uh, it was, it's on the very Eastern edge of Culver city leading into mid city and, you know, the core of LA and, and South LA, South central LA. So it's a, it's a marginal neighborhood, I guess. So there was Inter interactions with gang members and uh, all around me, including like my next door neighbor, you know, was a gang member. And so, so it was always a, a little edgy and, you know, of the kids that I uh, were in my neighborhood, you know, kind of three of us went, went off and went to college and got degrees and kept going. Many did not, many um, ended up more caught up in this thing. And, and back to your question, the out, doors to me represented this, um, this ability to get out of this environment, get into a place that was beautiful and, and exciting and adventurous and natural, and then look back and realize this, that I'm not actually part of the city. I am separate from that. I am myself. I can choose to be in the city or not. And when I come back to it, especially after sort of multiple days out, I learned to appreciate things that were, I just took for granted sidewalks, for example, or uh, hot running water or things that I, I, I just sort of, you know, mindlessly used in the urban landscape. But by getting away from it, I, I learned how to have perspective and appreciation for things that were uh, more mundane. So that's a good question though. And is that, one can easily imagine that someone in your line of profession would have moved to uh, Salt Lake City or Denver or, um, you know, Bishop, California. Um, so is, so it sounds like being part of the outdoors had led you to reappreciate Culver City, Southern California, urban landscape. Um, is that right? Do you feel somehow some meaningful attachment to your roots as it were, or is it something that you haven't reflected upon um, in too much detail? I, he, uh, here's the thing, you know, I have a, a reputation. I've built a career, I would say successfully in the outdoor industry, but I also have other um, interests, you know, like in music and, and with musicians as a performer. And, and I, I see myself as a creature of the city. Like, and I, so, so thinking about moving to mountain towns or places where um, the culture of the outdoors is embedded, you know, in, 
in that community. I feel like, first of all, Los Angeles and Southern California is highly underrated for its offerings. I mean, where else can you live and access places like Joshua Tree National Park and the High Sierra and the Mojave and the ocean, you know, coastline beauty that's part of the natural offerings here in California. So I, I think even though there's not very many companies located here from an industri industry standpoint, it's still a place that has a lot to offer, you know, if you're, if you're okay with living in that sort of urban lifestyle, which is certainly what it is here, you know, small, tiny postage stamp homes and uh, escalating costs of, of, of property or rent. Um, but really, um, and, and not great for parks and close to home recreation. You know, I, I, I said that, you know, with Joshua Tree, but that's two and a half hours away if you have a car. Uh, the Sierra is a little further than that, you know, three, four, five hours. And so I've always managed to have a car, even if it was barely, you know, functional um, or people would laugh at it or the seatbelts didn't work or it would catch on fire. But <laughs> I always had one and, I, and that's how I accessed the outdoors that's near, but not, not really that close. And what was the transition like then from going from um, university at UCLA to working on the floor at A16 to eventually becoming part of this large industry? Um, what were the main obstacles that you faced? And was it um, that um, you had a, a undergraduate degree, I believe in geology, is that right? So it's something that sort of meshed well with the outdoor industry in terms of a scientific background. Um, and it sounds like you had leadership skills developed from the scouts. So was it a seamless transition or were there a lot of obstacles you just did not expect or opportunities that weren't there? Uh, um, I think that, you know, from an obstacle standpoint, I feel very fortunate that there, I didn't feel like there were many. Uh, once I moved into working at Adventure 16 and then I graduated from college, um, I was offered a management role. They kind of created some, you know, floor manager role for, for some of us, um, including some, I think folks you, you might know as well. So uh, I had an opportunity to kind of start to learn more about leadership in a real, uh, real life setting, you know, in a business, learn about running businesses. Eventually I started managing my own store out in the Valley, which was kind of the Northern frontier of Adventure 16's empire at, at that time. I think it was, there was a lot more openness in Los Angeles, in the outdoor industry at Adventure 16, uh, and particularly a, 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 a mentor of mine, Connie Self, who was the woman who hired me and who really taught me a lot about communication, about leadership in a business setting and how that's different than uh, other, other aspects where you might, you know, communication's important in the family setting or in, in a, uh, in a non-business setting, but in the business world, she taught me a lot about how to operate and how to communicate. Uh, so that was really um, an excellent opening for me. So I think it, it, it is, the obstacles were mostly financial. I mean, the outdoor industry, even to this day, is, is not a, it, it's very hard to make a living in the outdoor industry. Um, whether you're working the retail floor or shipping and receiving in, in, at a company, you know, oftentimes you're living in uh, mountain towns, which are expensive to live in, and, or um, in the urban core, which um, has its own challenges. So I think a, a lot of the cultural barriers that exist were not very high for me. 
you know, I was unusual in that setting and occasionally something would come up, you know, like, like the length of my hair, for example, uh, it came up once is I, as a manager of stores, you know, there was a certain look, I think that professionalism that people expected, but I had long hair, uh, you know, like down to the middle of my back or something. And, and, um, but it was, in my view, it was neat and clean. And even, uh, you know, on the cover of GQ, there's, there's, uh, what's his name, Fabio, you know, with like flowing locks and giant muscles, you know. <laughs> um, so I, I felt like, hey, this is part of the fashionable look, right? I, I'm not way out of that. But that, that became, you know, it came up once in a while. Did, did you ever feel, feel that your ethnic background was an obstacle or that it was presenting um, challenges that you weren't necessarily aware of right away? I know being an Asian American, I um, often think things are okay. And then I, um, upon reflection, I think, well, wait a minute, maybe maybe my my racial background did throw a bit of a monkey wrench into the um, into the interview of the proceedings. Um, did you get any kind of resistance like that at all, whether it was you, explicit or not? You know, the most interesting thing, and I did start learning about, in, uh, about diversity and inclusion relatively early in my time in the outdoor industry. I was working uh, with Adventure 16, but also with Outward Bound. They had an urban youth project. And since I had learned to be an instructor uh, as an, in the climbing world, as well as in Map and Compass and backpacking, which were programs that A16 offered, um, Outward Bound recruited me to work with them on this urban youth project, which was specifically targeted at developing uh, uh, people of color and um, underrepresented youth in the community of Los Angeles. Then next level was developing leadership from those communities because they realized like, wait, our leadership is all, you know, white Vikings coming out of the sky is kind of what I call it. And then they'd go leave. And then the kids were like, wow, that was amazing. But I have no connection to that. Like, I can't do that. That's not for me. Um, so, so in doing that work, I started learning a lot about, about the elements of inclusivity and, and what, uh, what barriers are like, what real barriers, not, not that there's a closed off fence, but the trails open, right? Everyone can go there, but that's not really how it works. So the, the psychological aspects, the cultural elements that, that help someone feel invited or not. And so, so one thing I learned about was um, internalized oppression. And to your point, the place where I felt the most discriminated against openly was with Asian people particularly Japanese people coming into the store, into my store, and then being in utter disbelief that my name is Kenji, that I am a Japanese American. And they, they would literally just like, they couldn't, I, they would look at me like, no, they would literally say no. Like, no, that, that's not even possible. <laughs> and I felt like, well, you know, I'm from LA, like we're, we've been a, We've been a minority majority. Well, the state of California has been major, majority minority since 1990. LA has been that the entire time. And so to come into my shop and then sort of, I felt very uh, insulted from that. But then again, I didn't speak fluent Japanese, which is an important marker of someone who, you know, belongs to a culture as you speak the language of it. And the other part of my cultural background being Armenian. Uh, when I started managing the Valley store, there's a large Armenian population there in Sherman Oaks and the Valley, San Fernando Valley. And they were, they were um, 
more welcoming, but also a little bit dismissive. Like um, they knew my name was Haratunian. My name kind of gives it away, right? If you know anything about language, you're gonna know, oh, that guy's Japanese and Armenian. Um, or his parents are very strange and they just picked names out of a hat. Um, so uh, that, that was, they were accepting and, and, but they were always trying to teach me, right? They wanted to welcome me in, but also like, hey, here's some words, here's some language, here's some, you know, invite me to the church, invite me to the events to help, help me be part of it. So it was more a positive experience, but the, regularly, the, and these are not necessarily Japanese Americans, I was referring to mostly Japanese tourists who, I mean, Adventure 16 was on the tour, uh, the tour bus schedule um, because it was a, a kind of an iconic store. It was right on the corner of Pico and Sepulveda, so very accessible in a, in a crowded popular area near UCLA, near Santa Monica, near uh, Venice and some of the cultural areas that are on the must visit list, Beverly Hills, you know, all of this kind of surrounds that West LA location. And we also interface with a lot of uh, celebrities, you know, from the film industry and the music industry and all that, that's all part of the LA fabric. Internalized oppression was really something even now I, I realize goes on and I see it um, in lots of different expressions in the outdoor industry, but also outside of it. Some other examples of internalized oppression would something, would it be something like I am of a certain social standing or race and I, I just can't be doing this thing called rock climbing. I look at rock climbers, they tend to be all white Europeans. Uh, there's a diversity of gender nowadays, which is, which is great compared to the eighties when things were just starting to diversify. Um, is that an example of internal oppression or is it, is it more extensive than that? You know, I, I feel like the climbing community has, you know, and, and you and I've been in it for a long time and it, it never felt particularly um, like that because maybe because to your point, you know, climbing was seen as a little bit of a, you know, self-identified dirt bag activity. In other words, low cost, uh, you know, bums could kind of do it and live off, live in a cave or live in, you know, in the, in the settings that don't require any money. So, um, and that's changed a lot, but that is the, the culture of climbing that, that I entered into. And I think Connie, back to her inspiration and um, because you know, when, I, when I was shopping at A16 as a, as a customer, as a teenager and a young adult, you know, that place was pretty, it wasn't your stand, you know, it wasn't a, a retail environment that would be considered friendly today. You know, there were workers there with holy jeans and they'd play rock and roll music and they were pretty disheveled often and, you know, wore the same clothes day, <laughs> day after day. Um, and Connie really worked hard to change that so that we were authentic. We were still the same people, the same hardcore climbers and backpackers and mountaineers, but that we also were cognizant that people coming in were needed to feel comfortable. And, you know, you look at REI today and they have, you know, they've taken that to a whole new level times 10, but back then it was a revelation to really for adventure 16ers to, you know, and, and it was a hard sell. And so, you know, part of my upbringing in that company and therefore in the business world was how do you coax people that have a corporate culture or a company culture into a different approach that isn't really where they necessarily personally want to be, but they understand it as, as a, as a 
good for the overall company. Therefore, yes, I'll, I'll play along. And that played itself out in different phases, I would say, um, of, of trying to professionalize this kind of funky shop experience. We've talked about how you bring your love and passion for nature to your work, but how do you balance the potential tension between being involved in an industry that engages with nature, but can also be seen as exploitative of nature? There's been a huge increase in numbers of people accessing outdoor um, venues, you know, and and because of the pandemic, there's been a, that that increase but the land management agencies and the nonprofit advocacy groups that work to kind of protect or, or at least um, keep these areas sustainable have been completely on their heels, like run over essentially. So that's an important message I feel like is, I do believe at the end of the day that we can have more people accessing wild places and that's actually good for protecting them, which isn't, that's not been the kind of, um, the schema that's been popularized. You know, popular thought is it's, well, the more people, the more impact. And so okay. we have to limit it. And there's this phrase that I, I am especially not happy with, and that's, you know, loving our, our wilderness to death or loving our wild places to death. And it's like, it doesn't have to be like that. We can, in fact, the more love we have for these places, the more value they'll have and the more we'll protect them. But we can't do that as just the, sort of relatively small environmental community that's mostly all white and wealthy. Like we have to include more people in that, in the caring. Otherwise, you know, if you're just going to protect the wilderness for a few privileged people, and, and, and this came up specifically in the climate community in a pretty meaningful way in DC, in the Senate hearing chambers with Tommy Caldwell and Sasha DeJulian and famous climbers, Alex Honnold, in this panel and and a, and a reporter asked well isn't isn't this you all just protecting your private you know playground for yourselves and no one knew how to answer it and the panel had not been prepped for that kind of a question in the meantime we had invited we as the access fund had invited younger newer people of color um women uh climbers who you know shelma jun and um, Bethany Leibowitz and these these people who are leading movements with tens of thousands of followers and events that they're putting on on the ground that are really meaningful and no one ever even referred to them or recognized that they were there and it was just a huge like oh shit aha moment that we have so much work to do if we're going to really be inclusive and really really work to make these places meaningful to a much broader audience. So I think at, at the core of what I'd like to, you know, get toward is that it does touch on the inclusion and, and the, um, the BIPOC and all that, you know, in, uh, inclusivity and, and, and um, the movement for diversity. But uh, I think in the end, you're, you're, you know, the idea that these wild places are getting impacted, you know, and, and recreation is part of the cause of it. And, how do we manage that? You know, if I'm such an advocate for protecting the wild places, which I haven't really talked about. I mean, my degree is in geography and environmental studies, not geology, but, you know, if, and I have considered myself an environmentalist my whole life, you know, from a pretty young age. Um, so 
how do I square those two things? You know, that, that dichotomy of more people outdoors, but more protection for the environment. There's a lot of um, empirical evidence being offered that since the pandemic in certain countries where people are able to get out, there's been more um, wear and destruction of, of natural parks and so forth. Because, not just because there's been more uh, people going to them because they want to get outdoors, but because of social distancing, believe it or not. So people step off the path to let others go by, which is both good and bad, and you can see why. And I was just thinking in relation to some of the stigma that outdoor activities receive. Uh, so there's an example of going outdoors. We now identify being outdoors and being in nature as being instrumental towards our own physical and mental well-being. And yet when it comes to recreating sports, which is part of the same thing, there's kind of a, a backlash or perception that, oh, that's just fun. Um, and there's the idea that sports really don't cultivate or develop in any way. They might, they might help you in your, in your own sense of personal satisfaction, but there's no real discussion, at least from my view as a philosopher who likes to reflect on these things, they're, they're absolutely essential things that different sports will help develop and cultivate from a virtue perspective. Um, one of the things that I was talking to with another climber named Brian Treanor, uh, who I think you know, is oh, yeah. one, of the, one of the most important things about outdoor activity is the sense of exhaustion that you get from, um, from doing it. So a total participation in nature and how that not, allows, not only allows you to appreciate nature, but there's something about, there's something harmonious about the body being exhausted by the natural elements, whether that's just the sense of exhaustion or as with climbing or, or water sports, you get a sense of humility about the element you're in, the kind of vulnerability um, you put yourself towards. Are, is, are those kinds of things being now, uh, are they drawn, being drawn by outdoor advocates in order to show that the more access we give to people, the more we educate them and train them properly about the sports they want to do, the more likely it is that they'll have the right perspective about how to treat nature? Or is it right now just a bit too, everyone just sort of out thinking they can do their own sport and they sort of get into it haphazardly and, and um, learn their own way as it were? I think that, that there is definitely a movement to, and it's been in place a while, but I think it's been, it's been increasing in frequency and volume is the, the messaging around getting in the conversation as people are getting outdoors to catch them as they're going and, and maybe remind them or educate or help them understand how to, you know, be responsible. And I, I couch it in this, you know, recreate responsibly term, which is, which actually is started as a hashtag, you know, in the social media world and became, became a, actually a coalition that now has state, uh, you know, uh, state chapters and, it's a, it's a pretty big movement with over a thousand organizations, part of it, um, because of that, exactly what you're saying. Interestingly, there, there, there is a, um, there's a denial or a, a, there's a eschewing of the, of the word sports when it comes to outdoor activities, like, you know, recreation activities, people, for some reason in the industry and uh, don't use the word sports they they even know the you know the olympics this year is going to feature climbing as a as a uh, actual you know competitive sport with medals and everything for the first time and you know and it's obviously you know the trend is heading and certainly in other categories about direct like mountain biking and whitewater kayaking and you know there it's competitive and there is a sports aspect to it and but for whatever reason sports 
maybe it is that competitive uh, aspect that, pe that people in the industry and advocates, athletes, are or don't don't like to use that term. Like oh, I'm not doing a sport. Um, they don't want to be seen as you know comp competitive in that way. Yeah, there's definitely a rising need to get in that conversation and to to intercede so that the impact is is lessened. And yeah, there's no you know, on the one hand, there's no doubt that, you know, more people is going to have some more impact. The counterpoint of that is, will more people accessing these areas create a stronger force of protection or a stronger force of advocacy in order to keep them in a pristine state or maybe, maybe even restore these ecosystems in a way that helps uh, flora and fauna, uh, you know, come back and revive, you know, whether that's replacing wolves in the Colorado wilderness or the, the mountain yellow-legged frog up in the Williamson Rock area that, that you, know, you and I have frequented before. You know, they're an endangered species. Can visitation actually facilitate, facilitate the, the rebound and resurgence of the natural environment? Yes, it certainly sounds like there's a lot of different levels. Um, I was reminded of, so there's the, the very expertise technical education that goes on there that someone on an everyday basis is just just not going to know how their activities impacting the local flora and fauna um, and a, in a very general way I was when you were speaking I was reminded of uh, where I learned how to windsurf in, in Britain and um, the, the, the sailors and the uh, windsurfers had a very close relationship to the water and to the beach and looked after it in many different ways and then so the, when I'm, the point I'm trying to get it is that because they have such a dedicated uh, relationship to the natural environment, they do care about it. And then on the weekends, when all the Londoners come down, they come down to the beach and they just see it as a place to recreate. That's where the problem occurs because they don't see, they don't see a relationship to it, except that they're there to drink and eat and talk and have and have a good time. And then they just leave. And as um, the British way often tends to be, unfortunately, is a lot of people don't pack out what they pack in, they just leave it on the beach. So after a, a, a big weekend, the locals in the town would go out and it would just be heaps and heaps of trash on the beach. And it's the local uh, rubbish collectors and so forth that get up super early about four o'clock in the morning just to clear the beaches. And it, it seems like if, if in a general sense, if one participates more with the natural environment, pennies drop and people begin to realize, look, this is the space I, I appreciate. And I think that provides an excellent foundation then for the more technical things you're talking about, where you can have experts come in and say, now, here's what, you know, using chalk in this environment, you know, if you're a climber, or here's what happens when, um, you know, near, here's the effect of neoprene on the environment, um, the wetsuits you use, which are notoriously bad um, and can't be recycled really. But it seems like there's a great opportunity to, to change the way in which we think about our participation with nature. And it sounds like um, you're doing a lot, your consultation firm's doing a lot of work in that area. Is that where your main drive is right now? Or are there a lot of other things going on for you right now? Yeah, I, I wanna speak to that just as a personal experience I had recently, because I think there's a, it's challenging to have that uh, interface in the wild place with the person, you know, maybe they have their dog off a leash and, and they're like, you know, why are you talking to me about my dog off a leash? Like if we're out in the wild, like, and, and it, so it's a, it's a, it takes a little bit of training and effort to understand how to approach that kind of situation. So, I, so I'll just put that on the side for a second. Um, in my business, you know, I 
I focus very much on the equity and access challenge. So, so it's a little, a little further. Um, I don't know if it's upstream or whatever, but it is uh, trying to trying to trying to make sure that first of all we have equity because I think if we have that, then we can have these more open conversations that are inclusive. People feel welcome to the table, and their opinions are valued, and and their ideas and their and their community connections can also be put in play to activate whatever initiative it is, recreate responsibly or um, the gym to crag, you know, conversation, which is a big one in the climbing world where a lot of gym climbers, where you go in and there's there's a washroom and, and, and bathrooms and well-managed, uh, you know, very secure top ropes and, you know, everything's handled as far as objective hazards go and environmental impact because you're in a building. Well, when you take that experience and you, you know, during a pandemic, now you can't go to the gym. Well, there's the sport climbing area out in the desert or uh, up in, you know, the Riverside Quarry or whatever. You go there. Well, guess what? There's no bathrooms. There's an approach trail you may or may not know. There's hazards along that path, uh, natural and artificial. Um, it, it's a whole different kind of experience, even if it is a sport climbing area that's relatively uh, similar to the gym experience once you get to the crag. So uh, getting into that conversation in a way that people can accept and not feel belittled or talked down to, condescended, you know, that these are not that easy to do. So it takes some training and it takes some, some thought and leadership to put in place. So that's kind of where we are, I think, as, as a community. Um, the pandemic has put uh, a real emphasis on, on this need for inter interceding while we have this uh, much bigger group heading out into these um, nearby wild places. And, and then there's another phenomenon too, which is social media, you know, has created a huge uh, awareness increase in, in, I think it's combined with, two, it's social media combined with the desire for people to have experiences. You know, I think there, there was a, for a long time during my upbringing, you know, it was really about having these, you know, these virtual experiences and gaming and, you know, all these cool things you could do now online. The fact that there is an online, you know, um, is fascinating to people. And uh, it's really a rich experience. You know, I, I used to see it as a little bit like the enemy, like, oh, let's put down your gaming and let's go outdoors instead. And I don't see it that way anymore. I feel like, you know what, gaming is here to stay. It, it is an amazing experience, you know, being with your friends from all around the world, slaying dragons in a virtual environment, uh, you know, and creating any character you want with any characteristics. You can be, you know, all these different people or, or beings. So it's, it's, I get it. It's fascinating. Like it's a little bit more mundane in some ways to, you know, drive to a crag and hike in and tie in and go climbing. But, um, but people have really kind of uh, rebounded from that and really wanted to have experiences. It's, it's actually um, documented um, in, this, in this book called The Experience Economy. And, and so organizations that, that facilitate outdoor uh, adventure, for example, whitewater rafting or climbing guides, you know, back in the day when Joshua Tree first became a national park, there was maybe five organizations that were permitted to teach climbing in the park. Now there's over 30. Um, and that's just a, a sign of the times that people are jonesing for 
getting some real adventure. To your point and your conversation with Brian, that excitement and that that exaltation that comes from being exhausted and really trying hard, right? It's all about trying hard in the wild places and feeling the challenge of the of the wild earth under your fingernails or under your toes and in your body. That's there is something about that that you know it's hard to describe, but it is what fuels the the interest in climbing worldwide and other sports that uh, activities that we've been involved in. It's How social media might problematize things for the outdoor industry, and um, you, you gave some examples, but it, I was thinking of uh, especially with windsurfing, but it can be any sport. You go on Facebook, and you will get. A remarkable footage, professional or amateur, of people doing insane things. And of course, this is all edited. And so it gives the impression that if you become an outdoor adventurer in this sport or, or an athlete or whatever, an outdoor activity, um, you're going to have this kind of experience. And of course, that's not how it goes, particularly with something like windsurfing. You spend most of your time wiping out and, and pulling yourself out from under the sail and these kinds of things. And um, I think a parallel to that is that when people want to, people aren't looking for meaning to life, as my friend used to say, they're looking for an experience of being alive. And it seems like social media is the way to give evidence to people that, that they're doing this to so the selfie while they're doing things, or here I am out in the outdoors or, or in the snow. And, and uh, maybe a cynical thought is people aren't either don't really want to have that kind of experience of the outdoors that we were talking about, or the even more cynical thought is maybe they're not actually capable of having that kind of experience because they, it's just not, it's not because they're physically incapacitated or mentally incapacitated. It's cognitively, they're just not aware of the differences that arise when you're outside in nature. That's not my view. That's just sort of the ultra cynical thought I can see being put out there. But is that something or anything of that sort, something you encounter uh, in doing your work? Yes, I think so. And I have worked done work with the Climbing Wall Association and other uh, uh, trade associations that operate as a leadership organization for the industry. And so part of that is certainly trying to assure that the industry has standards, that it's that it has professionalism and that it recognizes where the trend lines are and, and what's unique about the climbing experience to your point is that climbing now has, the activity has portals in the urban core all over the country, hundreds and over 700 gyms now. I, I did, I have a project, uh, one of my clients, you know, I, I had to, I have to do some work with the gyms in Southern California. There's 46 gyms in Southern California. I mean, from Ventura down, that's only just Ventura down. So I think, you know, that number was more like three for most of my climbing career. And only in the past seven or eight years has it just exploded. So now there is this core of climbers that are coming up in the urban environment. You know, they, they work, they have degrees they're, they're, or they're students, but they can afford a gym membership that's not cheap. And, they, and they're learning to be climbers. So they're learning the skills of climbing but in a, in a protected environment that has all the objective hazards, almost all of them completely removed. So then the, the learning of getting outdoors really is more just about that outdoor experience and what makes it different, whether it's weather or terrain or flora and fauna or, or now you know other people and proximity and sharing microbes. <laughs> um, 
so so it's uh i think in a way it's 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 unique in the climbing world that, that we have that like in the world of whitewater there's very few urban portals there are some though um but they're really expensive to build and and it's hard to make a business case for opening a whitewater park for example it's it's happening but it's much much slower and um not like the climbing phenomenon which has fueled this this you know olympics inclusion and so much of the challenge of managing wild places now so because i see climbing as a no pun intended a pinnacle activity like to go climbing you know, and i are going to have to you know have a backpack and have approach shoes or hiking boots we're going to have to have camping gear we're going to have to have a way to get to the get to the crag right and all, that involves all the other aspects of outdoor recreation sometimes even mountain biking or uh, uh, kayaking to the to the uh, crag right so you have to have this other skill set that climbing is is to get to the to the crag i should say so because of that it's it's really um, an important focus point because at the same time you have this new core of much more diverse younger um, inclusive peop uh, uh, population that's that's coming out there and and what are we going to do you know are we going to tell them well don't come here and leave your selfies behind and don't you know we're going to give them the finger wag or are we going to welcome them with open arms and then our places get trashed and then they get closed we know that you know in the climbing world we know because there's closed crags, you know, some of the most, some of the best crags local to me are closed and have been for over a decade because of environmental impact. So it's a, it's a big risk for us not to take action and, um, and not take this sort of laissez-faire approach, but no, we have to, we have to activate our troops, the people who can get in this conversation and help to you know, educate people that may or may not want to be educated. Um, and how do you do that? How do you intervene and um, help them see the see the way forward uh, so that other people can continue to enjoy it? You know, their kids, my kids, and our grandchildren thinking about the future and cooperation, collaboration with land management agencies, which historically have not had any incentive to to be friendly to recreationists. Or, you know, outdoorists, we'll call them. Like, why, why would the Forest Service or the National Park Service welcome more people into their, into their domain? Our, isn't their mission to protect and preserve for future generations? There's nothing in their mission that says, oh, and make sure that people have an amazing time and more people can access it. <laughs> it's, it's, so there's an inherent um, disconnect. And I think that things are changing though. Even when you look at organizations like the Wilderness Society and groups, uh, the Nature Conservancy, you know, the historical view of environmental protection has been to literally gate off areas and keep them from being accessed from people um, because roads and trails and people are what creates the impact. And the, so that there's a changing view around that, that, well, if that's, you know, you play that, that story out to its, to its end, what happens is that land becomes valueless, becomes like, for an example, this Williamson Rock that I'm talking about that I think you and I have climbed at multiple times, uh, it's been closed for so long that climbers now growing up in the age of the, of the climbing gym, 
have no idea that it exists. I once asked fairly recently, maybe three years ago, I was in a meeting at an REI with, with a, a gathering of climbers from the community and including, uh, I think Tommy was there and some other famous climbers. And I asked the question, how many people know about William, where William, Williamson Rock is? Literally like three people out of 30 raised their hands. I was stunned because I consider that to be one of the premier sport climbing areas in, in the area, but they had never been able to climb there. It's not a place to them. So what happens is places just fall off the radar, they get ignored. And at some point, some other interest, mining or foresting or damming to create energy or whatever it is, um, is, is a preferable access, you know, it's a preferable solution because, eh, you know, there's nobody else that cares about it. So I think that's the, that's the peril of our, our age right now that without, without recreation and engagement of people in these wild places, we lose them to uh, other interests that, you know, I think there, there are examples in California, but all over the world at places that have just um, fallen off the radar, lost value, and therefore easily accessed by other interests that then make it hard to or impossible to recreate there. It sounds like the outdoor industry has this cultural memory. Um, each sport might have its own cultural memory. It seems like when I was climbing that the stories and traditions, whether you got along with the people or not, were very much alive. And so there was an awareness of this. And it sounds like with the case of Williamson Rock that you mentioned, I don't know what the cause might be. Maybe it's social media or just the way things have, have, have changed um, uh, without any specific cause or reason. Uh, but it just seems like there's a lack of that layer of cultural memory that used to be, I guess maybe I took it for granted in the sports I would do. You'd always feel like you're participating in something. I, I was trying to avoid this phrase, the whole uh, podcast, I'm gonna have to use it. It came to mind when you said that um, a lot of people in the outdoor industry don't like to refer to what they do as sports um, because it's a way of life kind of thing. But so uh, maybe <laughs> if, if the activity or the sport is seen as a way of life, there is more of a commitment to understanding why certain, what a certain area is, why people go there, uh, all these kinds. I'm just, I'm thinking of all these different instances, both from climbing and, and from windsurfing. So is that, you, you, you mentioned that's a challenge. Is that something that you've seen progress over the years? You've, you've been a professional in the outdoor industry or is it something that's peculiar to this particular moment? No, I think I have seen it progress. And I think that there are organizations like the Access Fund who, whom I've served on the board of for, for nine years have just turned off that have really understood this and, and formed up uh, strategy and solutions for that. You know, you can, you can invest in places um, and create an infrastructure that is more durable. For example, that, you know, in the case of Williamson, the reasons of closure had to do with a lack of infrastructure. There wasn't even a trail, right? I mean, you just sort of bombed down the scree slope and, and there you were. And then were there any bathrooms? No. Was there a parking lot? No. Was there a trail? No. Was, and, and so when you don't, when you have, have a lack of infrastructure, you, it's going to create more damage. And so, you know, I, I'm an avid climber. I love, I love the sport. I love, would love to go back to Williamson. And I have been back with the park service, uh, with the forest service, as well as people from the Centers for Biological Diversity and people from the Access Fund and people from local community. And, you know, this is at the end of the day, it's a local community resource that's been removed 
from inventory, removed from access, and uh, we, we want it back, we need it back, but how can we do that and protect the uh, sensitive environment there? And um, so, so I think that coming in with, with solutions that uh, harden the, the infrastructure so that um, when there's access, you know, people can get there, but they're not doing as much damage. You know, you, so that's the sort of solution I think that the Access Fund is, uh, and other organizations like the Alpine Club and others are investing in and there's, and there's a movement that's moving at the same time as this increase in user base and in the diversity of, of users of the outdoor recreation resource. There's another thing that's becoming a higher awareness and it's cultural resources. And this is at play in the Bears Ears National Monument, for example, and other places where recognition of indigenous peoples, ancestral uh, uh, lands and sacred spaces is rising, and I think that's going to that that has been a play in the in the climbing world for a while. But I think it's becoming a broader, of broader interest to hikers, campers, trail runners, etc. And so that's the the good side of the of the social media um, effect is that it, it helps to bring awareness to more people. So it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, you know. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say about that is through social media, there's also been this. Um, movement of geotagging, which is putting places on people's radar that's specific to a latitude longitude and a place name that is now, you know, accessible and that there's a movement against that. In other words, these are places that are sacred or protected. I'm going to show you that it's cool, but I'm not going to openly put it on your map where you can just plug it into your GPS and then drive your vehicle into a you know, a situation putting people essentially not just in in danger of damaging the resource, but also of not understanding like how hard it might be to get there or what it takes to access that location. So these are these are all, you know, social media is such a it's really in the in the in the long view of history, it's such a new thing. Like there's very few etiquette uh, or or understandings of the effects of it. And I think we're reeling from that as a, as a society, you know, whether it's political impacts, environmental impacts, uh, or even social damage done in relationships, like all of that's being kind of worked out right now. So it's, it's both fascinating, horrifying, <laughs> it's, it's all of the above. That's encouraging to hear that there are these three strategies, at least these three strategies going on in, in your line of work. Um, as we come to a close to this podcast, you've mentioned two people in your life whom you found particularly inspiring. Would you like to say more about them or would you like to talk about anyone in particular, a philosopher, musician, a poet, an artist that's been particularly motivational and, and um, monumental in your life as you go forward? Wow, that's a good one, uh, Todd. You know, I, I feel like there's so many influencers in my life that have uh, you know, really helped shape where I, where I am and who I've become and how I've gotten here. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know that I could make a long list, but uh, you know, I, I I'd certainly credit you know my my dad, you know, who I I'm very critical of sometimes, but he helped me be open to new experiences and sort of nudged me without being forceful to try new things and do things that were not comfortable, you know that that. Uh, well, I played football as a kid, but my first year I was terrified of, of hitting people and being hit and 
that whole thing was so uh, foreign to me. And, and it was, you know, I was not good at it. And I really thought maybe I should just quit, you know, and he encouraged me to just stick with it a little bit, you know, just play the rest of the season out. And, and, uh, you know, maybe this was the first evidence that, that I was going to be a climber was that, you know, by the time the next season came around, my memory was so short that I decided, yeah, oh, I love football. I'm going to play again. But through that experience, I ended up playing, you know, eight years of contact football. And I, I played uh, in a championship team that to this day, you know, 50 years later is still a legend uh, team from the high school I went to. And so you know, I've seen the arc of these things. And so influences like coaches, um, even recently, I've, I hire coaches occasionally to help me when I feel like there's um, something in my way and, and something I can um, learn about and maybe change in, in a slight way in my own behavior. Uh, so people like that, um, people like Brian Trainer and you, um, you know, have had influences on me. And so I, I, I don't know that I could keep it under half an hour, you know, going down the long laundry list. But um, I, so anyway, I think that's, that is what it says. Those of you that are listening that, um, you know, that know me, you, you probably had a positive influence on me and, and I want to be thankful and, and grateful for that. You know, I'm very grateful for the path I've been able to, to walk and uh, for the career path that I've had and for any future career path that might unfold. Kenji, do you have any parting words of wisdom for our audience? Well, yes, it's uh, the axiom that, that you and I both know well, I think, is that um, there's a lot of climbers, there's a lot of old climbers, and there's a lot of bold climbers, but there are not a lot of old, bold climbers. Kenji Artin, thank you for your time. I wish you the best of luck in your work in the outdoor industry. It sounds immensely challenging, but also very rewarding and creative. And I think that's that's a wonderful thing to be a part of. Good Thanks luck. for letting me... Uh, let me go on and appreciate the, the opportunity. Todd, you have a good one. If you would like to know more about Kenji's work, philosophy, and contributions to the outdoor industry, please visit his website at www.kenjiconsults.com or see the podcast blurb for this episode. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share and subscribe. My name is Dr. Todd May. Thank you for joining us on Living Philosophy, and I hope you'll join us for our next podcast. Until then, don't just read philosophy, live philosophically.